Thanks, Peter, for bringing that passage alive. We haven't met. My name is Ben. Uh, I'm one of the student ministers. I normally go to 5pm. And can I just say, I've been so encouraged to hear um, all your, uh, the things that you've been learning from 2 Samuel. Tonight we come to the end of our series in 2 Samuel and uh, you basically, as we look back over what we've learned, you've basically preached my sermon for me. Um, but uh, let me pray as we begin. Father, we come to you empty-handed. Uh, Father, our eyes are upon you. We look to you to teach us and to guide us by your word tonight. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a person who normally wins uh, competitions. Uh, but that's why it was awesome. A few years ago, uh, I was at a work dinner and, um, and there were some lucky door prizes. And uh, sure enough, uh, my, uh, my luck, as it were, had come that night. Uh, first up, our table won, everyone on our table won a bottle of wine, so that was very nice. Uh, and then all of a sudden, my number was called out and I had won a, uh, two nights uh, in the Threbo Alpine Hotel for two people, so that was awesome. And then uh, the third thing I won uh, was the grand prize. Uh, it was the, I was the envy of the night. I won a, a brand new snowboard worth about 800 bucks and uh, the size of my grin, I think, was matched uh, by the noise of the audible groan as I walked up to collect my third prize for the night. Everyone was very unhappy. I didn't know what to make of it. Um, but a friend of mine came up to me afterwards and he uh, said to me something quite profound and it got me thinking. He said, Ben, I see it pays to have God on your side. Um, now, as you can imagine, my mate wasn't necessarily a theologian, uh, but he got me thinking. Ben, I see it pays to have God on your side. Well, it got me thinking, how do we know that God is on our side? How do we uh, know? Where should we look uh, to know that God, uh, God's favour, as it were, rests on us. Uh, should we look to our predicament? I suppose that's what my friend was saying. Should we look to the circumstances of our lives, you know, trivial things like um, you know, lucky door prizes? Uh, or should we look to bigger things, uh, maybe like the size of our house or the love of our spouse uh, or the success of our career? Should we look to those things? Or should we look uh, to our predicament? Or should we look to our performance? Uh, should we look to the number of ways we serve here at church? Uh, should we look to the regularity of our attendance here at church? Uh, or should we look to our involvement in the community to know that God is on our side? Should we look to our predicament? Should we look to our performance? Well, uh, I want to suggest chapters uh, 21 to 24 are a great place to think through those questions. Um, as I said, we're at the end of our series on 2 Samuel uh, and these chapters kind of like a retrospective of David's life and David's reign as king over Israel. If you like, they're a report card uh, or a performance review, almost, of David's reign. Now, I want to admit that that's not immediately obvious, but just kind of flick with me at the NIV headings. Let me show you how it works. Uh, Starting from the outside, chapters 21 and 24 uh, um, are like newspaper clippings about a famine and a plague, respectively, during David's reign. So, 21, Gibeonites Avenge, 24, uh, talks about the, um, the census. Uh, moving inwards, the second half of chapters 21 and the second half of chapter 23, they're like great war stories, if you like, and there's also a list of David's heroes that you might expect to see in a war memorial. Uh, and in the middle, chapters 22 and 23 are poems. 
Chapter 23, the first half, is a poem written by David at the end of his reign and chapter 22 is a song written by David at the beginning of his reign as king. And We're going to spend our time actually in the middle chapters uh, because they help us think through the question, how do you know God was on David's side? Uh, just a reminder, they're not in chronological order as we look through uh, these, these um, chapters. Okay, so how do you know God was on David's side? How do you know God's on your side? Uh, this passage teaches us three things. Hopefully they're on the screen. Uh, if you want to know whether God is on your side, don't look to your predicament. Don't look to your performance. Rather, look to God's promises. So that'll be our headings if you are taking notes on your bulletin sheets. Uh, don't look to your predicament. Don't look to your performance. Look to God's promises. Okay, first, don't look to your predicament. Uh, in the ancient world, um, people had a very strong sense of the divine. So, for example, you know, if you walk up to a modern-day farmer and you ask him, um, Farmer Bob or whatever, um, how do your crops grow? He might talk to you about the nutrients in the soil, you know, fertiliser and water and that kind of thing. But if you asked an ancient farmer the same question, how do your crops grow? Uh, he might say something like, the hand of my God raises my crops. And it was the same kind of attitude in battle. If a king in battle triumphed, uh, especially uh, if a king triumphed against a sworn enemy where the odds were against that king, then it wasn't just a victory, it was a vindication. It showed that God was on the king's side. And I think that's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of thinking that might have been going through David's mind when he wrote this song of praise. Remember, David uh, had been anointed as king, as God's chosen king during Saul's reign. Uh, He was a a mighty warrior. Uh, The Bible says he was handsome and ruddy, whatever that means. Uh, And we're told he won the hearts and minds of the people. And this made Saul burn with jealousy. Uh, And so poor David was being hunted like a wounded deer. So David was on the run and he cried to God, you might remember, words like Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? You see, for years it felt like David was deserted by God. But then at long last God delivered him. Look with me at chapter 22, verse 1. David sang to the Lord the words of this song, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David had been delivered and so he literally burst with praise as Peter communicated so well with his readings. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. See, David doesn't think that God is some distant God uh, who just sort of made the world and he doesn't care about what happens in David's life. No, it's the exact opposite. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Verse 3, he is my shield, the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. You see, God is personally present in David's life. His hand, as it were, is at work in all things. So verse 4, David calls to the Lord. He sings to the Lord who is worthy of all praise. Uh, And by the way, I wanted to just a little footnote here. That's why we sing in church because words that are put to music express an emotion uh, that you wouldn't be able to express just by words alone. That's that's one of the reasons why we sing. And so I wanted to say, look at the emotion in David's description. Verse 5. 
The waves of death swirled around me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. It just captures that, the fact that David was in desperate distress. He was on the brink of extinction. He cried out to the Lord, verse 7, and hallelujah. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. You see, friends, David was in desperate distress. God heard and then God came down to deliver. Verse 10, God parted the heavens and came down. Verse 13, out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. Verse 15, he shot arrows and scattered the enemies. God was personally present in David's deliverance. Verse 17, this tender picture of he reached down from on high like a shepherd almost, uh, taking a, a, a helpless sheep out of a, out of a brook. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Verse 18, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. God did what David couldn't do. Verse 20, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now that's the kind of God you want on your side. That's the kind of God you want on your side. This is the God who is powerful above all else, the God who is present at all times and the God who personally cares for his people. Just a beautiful picture and wouldn't it be great if we knew that this God was the God who was always on our side? Wouldn't that be awesome? But this is our first point. In order to know whether this God is on your side, you can't look to your predicaments. We've got to remember that uh, David suffered for years and years before God delivered him. We can't look to the immediate circumstances of our lives uh, in order to know whether God's on our side. We can't, in other words, take chapter 22 out of context. So remember, um, before David was delivered, he cried out uh, things like Psalm 6, verse 3, My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long, he cried. David had years of crying out us. Words like Psalm 13, verse 2, How long must I have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And of course, we look around uh, in the world today and we see that there are people who love God who are suffering beyond words. And we look around the world today and we see that there are people who absolutely detest God and they seem to be sailing through life without a care. And if you're a Christian and you're going through tough times, I want to urge you, please remember that God doesn't deliver, uh, promise immediate deliverance. God does not promise immediate deliverance, but he does promise eventual deliverance. And he urges you to wait patiently on him. Let me clarify, he doesn't, he doesn't promise uh, deliverance necessarily uh, before Jesus returns. So if you want to know whether God's on your side, don't look to your predicament. That's point one. Point two Likewise, don't look to your performance. Now, in verse uh, 21, David says something that kind of makes us cringe. I don't know if you did cringe. I certainly did when I read it for the first time. David says this, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Now, wait a minute, is that really what David says? I mean, David, haven't you read, haven't you read uh, Romans 3? There is no one who is righteous, not even one. Uh, maybe you should send more Bible studies, David. Um, well, in case you missed it, um, David really hammers home the point in verses 22 to 24 and he says the same thing in verse 25, the Lord has awarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. 
Now, we cringe when we hear that phrase, my righteousness, and why is that? Well, perhaps it's because immediately we think of uh, self-righteousness. You know, we think of religious pride. Uh, We think of that guy, that Pharisee who stands up uh, in the temple and cries out, I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. And Jesus is scathing against that guy. But to be fair, we need to give uh, David a hearing, I think. Uh, So what is righteousness? Righteousness isn't about pride. Righteousness actually is about humility. Righteousness, uh, in fact, basically means doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, and it's actually a relational word. So uh, what it means to be righteousness, a righteous rather, differs depending on your different relationships that you're in. So if you're a mum, uh, you're righteous uh, in that relationship if, you're, if you lovingly care for your kids. You're a righteous mum. Uh, if you're a king, you're a righteous king if you rule with justice and fairness. And in relation to God, you're righteous if you love him. You're righteous if you trust him and obey him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So righteousness is about right obedience. Verse 22, David says, I've kept the ways of the Lord. Uh, Verse 23, he says, all his laws are before me. Uh, And verse 24, he says, I've been blameless. So it is about obedience, it is about right obedience. But I want to say, ultimately, it's about right attitude. David says in verse 26, at the top of page 233, righteousness is about being faithful. It's about being pure, verse 27. Verse 28, it's about being humble. So all commentators, if you read the commentators on this passage, they will say righteousness does not mean perfect obedience, and they're right, I think. What it does mean, however, is wholehearted devotion to God. It's relational. And if that's what it means then I actually think it's, it's fair enough for David to say that he was righteous, at least at the time he wrote that song. So some of you were saying, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah the Hittite? Great questions. But remember, we're talking about David in his early years. Uh, Bathsheba, Uriah hadn't happened yet. Uh, and as, we've been, as the people were sharing tonight, David was uh, a good king in his early years. He was a, he was an, a righteous man. And uh, if you want to see David at his absolute best, uh, it's good to go back to 1 Samuel 26. Uh, And in that chapter, David is being hunted by Saul. His life hangs in the balance. Then all of a sudden, David comes across Saul who's sleeping. All he needs to do is pick up a spear and turn Saul into a sate skewer. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And why not? Well, David explains like this. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. I want you to see there the link between righteousness and faith. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, he says to Saul, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, I actually think that typifies David's character before he became king. Uh, and in his early years, it's fair to say, I believe, David was a righteous man. But here's the crucial question. Did God deliver David because of his righteousness in his early years? In other words, was God on David's side because of David's performance? In one sense, yes, tentatively, but in another sense, no. So in the Bible, again and again, we see a pattern. David sums this pattern up in verse 28. He says, You save the humble, 
but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Now, if you like, that's uh, what you might call the pattern of performance. God punishes the rebellious and God rewards the righteous. We see this pattern with Adam, we see it with Noah, we see it with Pharaoh, we see it enshrined in the law. And in one sense, God vindicated David and not Saul because David was righteous and Saul was rebellious. But as we've been sharing, did God ultimately treat David on the basis of his performance? Well, the answer is an emphatic no, isn't it? Uh, Look with me at the end of chapter 23. It's on the the next page, 234. Now, this is, uh, as you're getting bearings, this is a list of Israel's war heroes. Now, look who's mentioned at the end of the list. This is the place of prominence on that list. Verse 39, it's Uriah the Hittite. What David did with Uriah exposed the quality of David's heart. It exposed the cracks, as it were, in his character. That's why David is mentioned here at the end as we reflect back over David's life as king. It reminds us of David's betrayal of Uriah the Hittite, much, I guess, in the same way that when you mention the word Monica Lewinsky, that evokes uh, memories of scandal and betrayal in regards to Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary. Against Uriah, uh, you may may not need to be reminded, but against Uriah, David broke four of the commandments. He coveted his neighbour's wife, Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. He arranged to have Uriah murdered. And then he stole Uriah's wife to become his own. And if you know your Old Testament law, you know that these crimes were more than enough for David to deserve death. But did God treat him on the basis of his performance? Absolutely not. Ultimately, David was pardoned. And to a large extent, others paid the the horrendous price of his pardon. You may remember David's firstborn son to Bathsheba died. You may recall David's family and kingdom were thrown into turmoil, perhaps uh, not quite as great, but almost as great as the global stock markets are in turmoil at the moment. Actually, greater, I think. Ultimately, God didn't treat David on the basis of his performance. He was pardoned. Which means, I think, actually, that David, therefore, was not righteous all along. Uh, I think his sin exposed what was in his heart and God saw that. Uh, God sees what's in a man's heart and God knew that this was, this was the kind of person he was. It's a bit like, I suppose, uh, if you go out into a field and you're wondering, uh, are there weeds growing in that field? You look out, you see nothing and you say, well, uh, there are no weeds growing in this field. You come back a bit later, six months later, and all of a sudden uh, you, see field, uh, you see weeds in that field, you know that the, that the weeds were growing there all, all along. I think um, what happened with Uriah exposed that that David's seed of rebellion was there in his heart all along. It just hadn't been watered yet. But David was pardoned and by the end of his life he could say chapter 23 verse 5, back on uh, page 233, 23 verse 5, David says, Is not my house right with God? Is not my house right with God? God was on his side but not on the basis of performance. And if you're a Christian, you need to hear this loud and clear. God is not on your side on the basis of your performance. Thank God God is not on the side of the basis of your performance, my performance. Uh, the other day I was chatting to a friend and uh, he said 
something quite interesting. He said, um, he's telling me his life story. He said he'd done some pretty awful things. He said he'd neglected his friends and his family. He said he felt terrible. And he said, now I'm coming to church uh, so I can pay God back a little. He's coming to church so he can pay God back. Now, I wonder if you think that, even just a little bit, in the way that you serve here, that you might be somehow paying God back. I think it is tempting to think that way, but we need to remember in God's eyes, our sin is so grotesque, our rebellion is so revolting, we can never, ever pay him back. We can never pay off our debt to him, even if we did as much good as Mother Teresa, or better. On his deathbed, Martin Luther said, We are beggars, that is true. We are beggars, that is true. And he's absolutely right. And I wonder whether you believe that wholeheartedly. I wonder whether in your heart of hearts before God you see yourself as a beggar and you come to him and say, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for rest. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Friends, God is not on the side of you. He's not on your side on the basis of your performance. And one other thing what this means, uh, it means that you can't barter with God. It means you can't say to God, God, if I'm really, really good, you'll have to bless me. You can't say... Get angry. You can't get angry with him and, and, and if things don't go your way, you, you can't appeal to him and say, but God, I'm a connect group leader, but, but God, I'm on three committees here at this church. It doesn't work like that. And be thankful it doesn't work like that because if God treated us on the basis of, us, of our performance, he wouldn't automatically deliver us, he'd automatically desert us as we desert him by our sin. So we can't look to our performance to know whether God's on our side. And if that's the case, where can we look? Well, that's point number three. Look to God's promises. Given what uh, David did to Uriah, where did he get the nerve? Where did he get the nerve to, to think that God was on his side? Where does he get the audacity to, to say in chapter 23, verse 5, is not my house right with God? Well, let's read on in that verse. David says, has, not, has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? You see, God pledged himself. God bound himself. God devoted himself to David like a husband to a wife on their wedding day. That's what it means to have an everlasting covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, God said to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God devoted himself to David and his descendants. God promised David, I will always love you. So you thought Whitney Houston came up with that, didn't you? But actually God says to David, first of all, I will always love you. And like the perfect husband, God remained faithful to David. Because God always keeps his promises because that's the kind of God that he is. And if you're a Christian, God has said to you, I take you to be my dearly loved child from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, and death will never do us part. 
If you're a Christian, God has made promises to you even greater than the promises he made to David. Promises that he intends to keep. Promises that will last forever. Promises like these. Matthew 28 verse 20. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always. Promises like Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Promises like Romans 8 verse 39. There is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. And Revelation 21 verse 3. A time is coming, says God, when the dwelling of God will be with men and he will be with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Now I'm going to confess when I read through those verses and just reflected on the gravity of what they meant for us. I I wept tears of joy because if you're a Christian you know you wouldn't trade any of those promises for all the gold at Fort Knox. Even if Satan offered you the whole world, you wouldn't, you wouldn't give in a single, you wouldn't give up a single promise. Because when God makes promises, He intends to keep them. And I am sure that there are some here tonight who don't know whether they can trust God. Maybe it's because you're not a Christian. Maybe it's because you're still picking up the pieces of a betrayal from a parent or a spouse, or a friend. But dear friends, we can trust God. We can know he'll be faithful to his promises forever. And here's how we know. Because God has given proof by sending his son. Friends, we have a king who parted the heavens and came down. We have a king who descended from David but who was remained faithful to the end. We have a king who should have been rewarded according to the cleanness of his hands and yet who allowed those hands to be nailed to the cross. We have a king who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a king who died like David's firstborn son to Bathsheba to pay the price of our pardon. God has pledged himself to us He's made glorious promises to us and he intends to keep them. He intends to keep them all and he's given proof of this by sending his son to us as our righteous king. So if you want to know whether God is on your side, don't look to your predicament. Don't look to your performance. Look only to God's promises. For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not give us all things? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How can we respond? Well, let me sum up in three sentences. Number one, practice patience, because God is faithful. Number two, purge your pride, because nothing in your hand you bring. Number three, explode with praise, because God is is our rock. God is our fortress and our deliverer. He is our stronghold, our refuge and our saviour. Let's pray.